I'm Matsudiso, a musician, songwriter, producer and composer. I also teach. I'm fascinated by process, how we make what we make, why we make what we make. As a musician, I'm always learning from and inspired by other creatives, other musicians, artists, the arts itself, people. In short, life all inform the music I make. And I think that learning from others enriches not only our own art, but the arts. And why holding up the ladder? Well, because we're all trying to get somewhere and I think we build something stronger if we help each other. If we hold up the ladder rather than pull it up from under us as we climb. I'll be talking to all kinds of creatives about process, lessons learned, things that inspire us, the music we're listening to, what makes us who we are and the help we've had along the way. So join me as we climb, holding up the ladder. I have a confession to make. I don't really understand art. I studied languages at school, but the more you learn languages, you realise that you're really only learning the basics to get by. You know, how to ask for directions, how to order a beer at a restaurant. But the right person will open up your understanding to see things in a new way. Thomas J. Price did just that as he walked me through his practice. Especially for black men, you do have to be very careful about how you present yourself. Mm. Um, because there are many ways that um, you, know, you can be persuaded to act in a particular way, whether it's positive reinforcement for acting out certain archetypes, or mm. whether it's through negative reinforcement, you know, removing opportunities because you won't conform. You know, it might be a bit of a risk, but I don't want my work to conform, because that, that is the power of the work. A multidisciplinary artist, Thomas works across the mediums of sculpture, film, photography and performance. He studied at Chelsea College and received an MA from the Royal College of Arts in 2006. His work is, and I quote, a wider exploration of racial and social identity, perception and representation. There's a deliberateness, a decisiveness about Thomas's work, but it's in the ordinary, his figures don't stand boldly, they're not muscular with their chests out in a heroic stance. No, they have their hands in their pockets or they're playing with their phone. They may even be slouching, their expressions blank. But here's the thing, it's the monumentalising of the ordinary that critiques what we consider important, what we consider valuable, what we give public space to. And I wouldn't um, play up to the value system of the imagery, so I wouldn't have my figures um, stand shoulders back, heroic, presenting their greatness to the world. It was about um, refusing to accept those standards. We talk about his journey into the arts, from a potential career in the Royal Marines to artist, notions of identity, of black male identity, and taking space unapologetically. We talk about removing or replacing racially charged public monuments. How does art speak to culture? How does art challenge? Why does it challenge? And of course, we talk about music. Thomas, thank you so much for taking the time out of your day to, um, you know, be part of this interview. I'm really grateful. That's a pleasure. Thanks for asking me. Just for those who don't know, you're a multidisciplinary artist. You work across different mediums, sculpture, sculpture film, photography and performance. But um, why don't you just tell us a little bit about who you are? Um, yeah, well, I am an artist based in London, um, or I show internationally, um, and my work's looked at kind of uh, modes of representation and um, 
kind of who society chooses to present as um, sort of <laughs> people to look up to, um, to aspire to be, and what that says about the nations that we live in and the values that we hold. Um, and really looking at a kind of a personal experience of how to try to navigate interpersonal experiences. Um, so what it means to be a person and, what, and then sort of that kind of developed into what it actually means to be a person of colour, uh, not just in the UK, but globally. Um, and sort of, I don't know, sort of looking, I, I kind of tend to look at um, images of uh, male, black male masculinity, sort of as a microcosm to, to look at the wider context of how we societies look at each other and, and how these kind of power structures are created and maintained, essentially. Yeah, and I actually first became aware of your work because um, from a collector who had one of your incredible busts in his house. And then I also saw you at the National Portrait Gallery. But I'd love to talk a little bit more about, you know, your sculpture because you make these fantastic bronzes and that, well, you use bronze, you use aluminium, you use 24 karat gold of, um, you know, mainly largely black men, largely sort of they're not real people they're figure figurative sculptures you know on your in your bio it talks about your obsession with the minutiae so you'll see some of the um your images as like arms folded or holding a phone or like lifting the hood of a uh, of their their hoodie so I'd just love you to speak into why why that I guess yeah I mean my work is actually scale is particularly important to to my practice and I've actually um, I've stayed away from life size because these sort of um, these pieces were all about getting people to uh, re-examine um, the things that they might see every day um, and so for me changing the scale was a way to present a almost like a, a problem for people to solve um, to as a way to basically engage people in this sort of explorative um, exercise of kind of yeah um navigating the object um that was in front of them and the fact that an object became very important to my work because it was about this relationship between um people in space and so these sort of propositions these these figures heads um based around sort of the, the art history so these sort of um taking the, the visual language of portraiture taking the sort of the, the visual uh, and formal cues of um, sculpture from the classical, from neoclassical times. Um, you know, these, these modes of, of, of art, which have been used to propagate images of power, essentially. And it was particularly, it was, it was normally male for the most part. It was almost exclusively white um, and, and, and moneyed. Um, and so I wanted to look at, um, essentially take sort of the internal experiences of myself and talk about kind of trying to how to relate that to other people. So, you know, what are the issues? What are the problems about interpersonal communication? How do we connect to people? So from an, an, a personal position, how is that comparative on a, a different demographic? So like a racial or uh, gendered. And I was I basically used images of uh, black men because I, I am one. So it felt kind of genuine, <laughs> um, but also as I started making these, these pieces way back in uh, like 2002, uh, the reaction to these, these figures, the fact that they weren't white, was, was, was huge. And 
I didn't even realize at the time that was going to be an issue because I was trying to do these internal worlds. So I was trying to get to the truth of what it means to be a, a human being and to experience emotions and then see if essentially empathy could be created between an object and, and a viewer. So dealing with then how images of power uh, are presented in, in, in a national, on a national level, um, scale is obviously very important because these pieces tend to go outside or the idea of scale, like large being connected to good and, and great. So I, my first piece actually, was the first sculpture was a very small fictional character. So again, as well as scale being very important, the idea that these people are, they're actually um, psychological constructs. So they're not portraits of anybody. If, if anything, they're a portrait of a psychological state. I did a very small plaster head and it was plaster as opposed to marble because I was also trying to critique not just the scale of what's used to be mon monumental, but also the material. So mm. it was plaster instead of um, marble. It was very small instead of large. It was reasonably detailed to kind of draw people in. And it went on a, on a little shelf um, on a very large wall with one screw in the shelf, like a scrap piece of wood, and um, had one spotlight on it. And it was this sort of, I always talk about it as kind of a Lucio Fontana kind of slash in the wall this sort of very dense object which pulled the focus towards it. And it was this idea of trying to kind of undermine the accepted um, structures of power and accepted ways of decoding um, visual language and, and the kind of social cues which go into how we form our, our own identities, I guess. Mm, that's so interesting. Just tell me a little bit about, you said you were surprised by the reaction what kind of reactions were you getting? Um, well, when I, when I, because I, I, I did stop motion animations initially, because I was always very in interested in animating spaces of these kind of interpersonal spatial relationships. And I, that probably came from like walking down the street and people even moving out of the way or me having to step on the other side of the road. You know, I literally was told, make sure you, you, you don't walk on the same side of the road as someone because they might get nervous, you know, as a, as a child. Um, uh, and so when I presented, initially my animations were actually of, of observed people, so it was actually a white person. Um, and it was all, the comments were, oh, this reminds me of my father, or oh, I wonder what he's thinking, um, things like that. I presented then uh, animation of someone who happens to be black that I'd also observed like, on my daily commute at the time. This is back in 2001, two, I can't remember when. And the reactions were, oh, he's black. You know, why, why, why is he black? And it was, it was very genuine. It wasn't meant in malice. It wasn't meant um, in any way uh, as a put down. It was a, it, they were just real questions. And that was the first time I actually recognized that <laughs> this guy was black, uh, as opposed to just being a person. And all these, these animations later became named as, um, or titled as Man, and then Number One, or Man Two, Man Three. And I think that definitely was a, um, a belligerent attempt to talk about the, the, the general humanity of these, these characters. I mean, it was me sort of resisting or refusing to put black in front of it, you know, because I was looking at the, the descriptions in um, media and papers and news reports. And I think a lot of um, anyone of colour is basically fully aware that if it's a negative story, it tends to have the colour description attached to it. If it's a positive story, they leave it very ambiguous so that essentially it's going to be associated with white achievement. Um, and so this was very much about 
refusing to acknowledge the, the race of these these characters. So I think at the time, and this is you know this is very early on in my career, and I was very young um, at the time. I, I was my strategy was to avoid talking about the race. It's almost like a kind of a booby trap, or as a snare to essentially get the person viewing the work to reveal their inner schemas. And so this was very much about refusing to acknowledge the, the race of these these characters. So it wasn't about the object, really. It was about the person looking at the work. Amazing. Amazing. Uh, one of the things that I love about what you're saying, and I've been really contemplating this stuff because I'm doing some work in sort of masculinity and black masculinity, is that often mm. I found that that what I love about what you're doing in some ways, I guess, is is there's a deliberateness in normalizing the ordinary and that the ordinary has value. And I often feel like black people, we yep. have to be extraordinary all the time or be the first at things all the time. Yep. And what I love about what you're doing is you're presenting people that could be, I guess, anybody, but they are everybody. And that's where the inherent value is, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. No, I talk about intrinsic value a lot in the work and exactly. how we all carry intrinsic value. Exactly. And so you have this, what I've sort of, when I think of you and your work, I'm thinking, you know, it's reframing, it's reimagining, but in that doing, it's kind of subverting what actually should be normal, which is what you're talking about, this intrinsic value. Yeah, 100%. I mean, this, the, the, the figures that I do, you know, the reason I, 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 I take cues from sort of ancient Western um, art, so the work of the Greeks, uh, and then later, obviously, the Romans he took from that. Um, it's because that's what's been, you know, what's become the de facto, the go-to uh, visual language for portraying, you know, greatness or affluence or any kind of positive characteristic. Um, you know, people always talk about the classics and, you know, go to eat and all of these good, you know, colleges and, uh, you know, they're always referencing the classics. So I wanted to essentially sort of... Um, crack into that um that world and but yeah subvert it in the sense where i would include myself without any apology or i'd include mm -hmm. people that i could um, associate with or recognize and even though these are all fictional characters i could recognize a type of person and i wouldn't um play up to the value system of the imagery so i wouldn't have my figures um stand shoulders back heroic presenting their greatness to the world it was about um, refusing to accept those standards um, because, you know, it's like uh, the most powerful person in the room is probably the person fidgeting, not necessarily listening, not sitting up straight, you know, doing their thing. Whereas I think black people have been told to present incredibly um, toned down or um, you know, a, a construct. Um, you, you mentioned, you know, you've, got, you've always got to be exceptional or the first. And this mm. is about, you know, this is about being a valuable citizen, a valuable person, a human being, even if you slouch, even if you're a little bit overweight. You know, like one of my uh, sculptures is called um, Sportswear, and in uh, parentheses, Achilles Street, which is actually down the road from my studio. And there's a guy in sports, you know, he's got a sports top on, a kind of American football jersey, and he's just, he's just standing. He doesn't look particularly sporty. And it's this sort of playing against the expectations, almost the demands of, of the kind of the world that we live in society we live in if you're you know black or ethnic minority um is to sort of somehow fulfill the expectation of uh, kind of a palatability of a a, a friendly face you know you've got to smile 
you know, make sure you smile, otherwise you look aggressive. Like I, I don't, I don't know any other groups that really have to deal with that pressure mm. um, in that kind of way. And so none of my figures really smile as such. You know, they, and that was the other thing. Like, why do they all look so miserable? Well, they're not looking miserable. They're just not performing for a viewer. You know, so yeah. th- these pieces exist whether the viewer's there or not, and that's their power. They don't have to be massive. You know, when I started doing like larger than life size sculptures it was because they were going to go outside or they were going to go into an environment whereby their scale would be discovered upon approaching and again so that play with the distance between the viewer and the 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 object the presentation of this this large black silhouette you know this black bronze silhouette and the fact that they're in bronze in the first place you know it's you know that was the material that was used you know it was like an investment expensive material connected to the Greeks uh, <laughs> through Western um, thinking. Obviously, they've got the Benning bronzes, which mm. my later work references. And, and, you know, the actual, the technical and artistic sort of genius of, you know, within Africa. You know, mm. And when, the, when they were discovered how suddenly, you know, uh, ac- uh, academics would say, oh, this is proof that uh, Westerners were here long before we thought. <laughs> you know, mm. these assumptions to mm. essentially take the, the cultural, yeah, I say genius, the cultural richness, as well mm. as the resources from Africa, and and claim it, um, mm. was 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 an interesting one to discover as, as as a teenager. It's not like I knew this when I was young. So mm. I think a lot of my work is looking at my own value system, and looking at the kind of the the, the way that I try and navigate the world to maintain a healthy sense of self, mm. uh, of place, and and um, of agency. You know, like um, in a world where, you, especially for black men, you do have to be very careful about how you present yourself, mm. um, because there are many ways that um, you know you can be persuaded to act in a particular way, whether it's positive reinforcement for acting out certain archetypes, or mm. whether it's through negative reinforcement, you know, removing opportunities because you won't conform. And you know, it might be a bit of a risk, but I don't want my work to conform. And because that, that is the power of the work. And so mm. I think, although there's no sort of <laughs> overt um, outrage within the kind of work I do, you know, mm. um, I think it, a lot of people find it quite uncomfortable um, because right. it, it forces us to think about how we relate to one another. Mm. And at the same time, some people find it very uncomfortable, but the, particularly the, the, the response to the public works is, you know, particularly from black people, is hugely positive, not just from black people, from I would say anyone that who doesn't feel like they're a, you know, a conquering lord on a horse, you know, standing down pal pal. Um, I think they see someone in clothing or in a in a body position that they can relate to, and it mm. makes them feel included. And that's such an important sort of element of of today's society is to feel included. It's so interesting. I was thinking about um, 
I'd love to know what you thought about uh, removing some of these big iconic figures that ha- are connected, say, with racism and oppression. So, for example, mm. I know in South Africa they had the whole roads must fall, and then in America with all the you know civil war statues. I was wondering what your yep. thoughts on that, considering what you create and what you're saying with what you yeah. create. I found it a really interesting moment because this is something I'd been sort of obviously speaking to. In, well, in, at least in my own head for quite some time during all these sculptures, it was about looking at what is out there, what, is, what are these representations, who are they of, who isn't there, and then presenting um, as in, you know, adding to the conversation, so adding an alternative. And so I found it very interesting, the debates that have um, kind of sprung up about whether or not they should be just removed, they should, they should be replaced whether they should have something else put, you know, opposite for context or they should put in museums and, and given context, given an educational program. Um, I, 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 you know, I, say I find it interesting. I don't, I don't think I have any solutions. I, I think that why not a mixture? And I think it really depends on the, the, the sculptures they're talking about and the areas that they're in, you know, the communities around them. I, I could certainly see some inclusion in museums which um, educates you know, future generations about what sculptures were put up, particularly you know, like in the, in the States, when a lot of these, the Southern States place sculptures there to sort of try and subdue um, the non-white population by mm-hmm. celebrating quite horrendous individuals and mm-hmm. who, you know, would, who led horrendous times and um, truly awful people. I, 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 you know, I, I don't see how they could be viewed as anything other than quite aggressive acts in themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for those, I think, yeah, why shouldn't they remove them? I think that'd be quite a cleansing of, you know, um, activity. Mm-hmm. Um, should they be then, I don't think they should be forgotten either. Mm-hmm. I think that's too, that's too easy. That's a cop-out. I think um, you shouldn't be allowed to just forget. Mm-hmm. You know, if there, there's so many other events in the world that we're not allowed to forget. And we're told this on a daily, you know, never forget. Mm-hmm. So what, why, why not? actually acknowledge the, the the wrongs that have been done throughout history um, to black people mm. um, why not why is that why is that such a scary prospect for society mm. why is that going to lead to terrible things it won't it's about saying you know what we acknowledge that wrong was done and we actually care and so we're going forward we're going to make sure that we <laughs> retain that understanding so that we can do better and you know that clearly isn't happening mm. you look mm. at you know, the whole thing now with, you know, COVID-19 and you look at who's affected and, you know, black ethnic minorities are disproportionately affected. That's no accident, you know. That's because nothing's equal at the moment and, mm. I, and people don't want to talk about it. But it's just another sort of, <laughs> can't bury our heads in the sand. I think there's so much fear around um, acknowledging uh, things that are not right. That yeah. where is this going to lead? You know, mm. like... Well, it might lead to some good change. How about that? Mm-hmm. So, so I've kind of gone off piece, but um, I, I think that the, the kind of the issues around public monuments, essentially, which what those sculptures are, you know, I look mm-hmm. at, you know, um, we have to look at, okay, what are we monumentalizing? What are we celebrating? What are we trying to propagate? What are we trying to reinforce? And if those sculptures don't, you know, match up to those ideals of what we want, then I think we need to look at ways of placing something that does. Yeah. We're not powerless in it. You know, Sides like, well, it's up there now. What can we do? <laughs> well, you can put something else up. You can mm. have an educational program. 
you can at least talk about it. So, you know, I think I think there's lots more change to come. Yeah, 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 definitely. Um, so tell me, you've already kind of spoken into it, but who or what inspires and informs your work? I've been inspired in my work through so many different kind of factors. Um, you know, I always talk about, you know, I was very lucky that I was taken to museums as a child, and that really got me started on this idea of sort of um, taking away the fear element of what art or culture might be. Um, and so when I decided to become an artist, I really was, I, I think I was just trying to listen to the things that excited me. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I, I, I do think that a lot of visits, you know, museums, institutions, which archive culture have been a big impact, a big factor in, in sort of how I choose to present my work. And so almost talking to, speaking to the institutional element of expectation. So what's officially sculpture? What's officially art? So with the, you know, the, the bronze figures, for example, or the heads, you know, I went to a National Portrait Gallery and looked at aesthetic, formal ways of presenting the bust. Mm. You know, and I call mine heads on purpose because I, I don't see them as busts. I try and chop them off a little bit before it gets into that territory. Right. But I, I did want to look at these, these these formal codes, these these aesthetic codes, um, and um, sort of commonalities, uh, and the same with the figures. You know the different poses. So how do I then undermine those poses by just doing very naturalistic things? So you know when I had the show at the National Portrait Gallery, it was uh, it was interesting because I said, well, these aren't portraits. And they're like, no, no, that's that's why we want them because they 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 sort of you know it's the contrast that that actually makes it interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think it's, you know, and then obviously it's just about my experiences in the world. Mm-hmm. And I, I guess for me, I was very lucky that I found a, a voice quite early on um, during my practice. And if this has been kind of a natural way for me to sort of explore, explore my feelings and, and, and talk to people, reach out and have a connection with an audience, you know, with people like yourself, with people who can then give feedback as well, you know, with, with through the public works it's a way to actually talk to the, the people out inside in the street who, who wouldn't necessarily consider themselves uh art connoisseurs you know they, they wouldn't yeah. well don't you know it's, it's people who just give reactions and for me as a as a human being as a person who's kind of interested in what other people think that's you know just such value in that such value mm-hmm. in having people see work or just objects as they see them and 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 get them to think a little bit about the world around them. Yeah, yeah, I love that. I'm just, I'm just imagining, obviously, because art is something that I love, but it feels like a language that I really have very, a very rudimentary understanding of. Are there other artists that, you know, so for example, as a musician, I listen to so many other musicians because it speaks to or influences how I write and how I hear. Are there other yeah artists that you I don't know do you walk around galleries like you said or look at other artists and think oh that's feeding what I do um I think (laughs) probably more from my yeah yeah the arrogance comes out now I think I really do respond to kind of the materiality to to aesthetics to palettes um I I, I think I discovered the work of um, Kerry James Marshall quite late on I think I was finishing my MA um when I sort of uh, saw his work, and I just remember being blown away by just the just the sheer quality of it. 
Um, so in terms of inspiration, I think someone like that, his, um, the approach to his work, the, the rigor at which he approaches the subject matter, the actual practice, the execution of it, um, I do find that truly inspiring. Um, I just, you know, it's just a bit too expensive for me now. But I really think he's, uh, I think, yeah, that's, that's just a professional excellence, you know, and, he's, and he's, a, he's a very decent human being as well. Someone like Fred Wilson, I, thought, I find his work um, to, to be, it, it, it talks to similar um, kind of ideas um, like my own work, um, but in a very different way. Um, I, I, you know, you're just another incredibly clever man. He just you know, does really uh, beautiful and, and often the very subtle works which, which critique the museum structure, you know, mm-hmm. the, the institution. I don't know, there's, there's like so many. When I was studying, I used to look at um, like Matthew Barney in terms of that kind of, you know, looking at masculinity. Mm. I found it quite interesting. And, the, and yeah, in fact, that he would mix in music and sculpture and film because you had like Tarkovsky talking about, you know, sculpting in time is what film was. So all these sort of these crossovers. Um, you know, I went to Sonic Boom. I can't remember when that was, what, that 2000 or something at the, the Haywood Gallery. You know, an amazing, amazing sound exhibition that just kind of changed my world because um, I wasn't even in art school at that time, and right. it, it let me see the kind of this this idea that tangible could be something, yeah, truly tangible, or it could be the you know the kind of the the, the conceptualization of the tangible, and mm-hmm. and you know sound, for example, how that would bridge that gap mm-hmm. in such an incredible way. Um, and and yeah, and, and film and editing and yeah, all these things sort of kind of came together to create this sort of this excitement, um, which drove me to to t- start exploring making works through different mediums. Right, right. And so, take me through your day. I'm trying to imagine. You know, you turn up at your studio. Like, you know, what's your making process? I mean, I I tend to start with an idea, and I'm I'm quite lucky that. A lot of my ideas are sort of informed by previous works. So it might be I'm making a work in response to a work, which is in response to a work, which is a response to a situation. Uh, you know, so it's this kind of this self-feeding loop. Mm-hmm. Um, once that's established, that might take a lot of staring into the space, which I always say is very valuable time. Yes. Um, so, but you know, you know, I think most people, you know, I wake up. I'll either probably cycle to the studio or take the bus and you know, do my emails. And then um, I, I, I normally try and leave, when I've left the studio for the previous day, I try and leave myself either with a note or something to go straight into doing. And so pretty much I'm either uh, modeling um, sculptures on the computer. So I use a lot of 3D software now. Um, I, I can 3D print. I might do a, a mold and then a cast and do further sculpting. Um, I do kind of digital mock-ups, uh, renders, um, physical maquettes. Um, I do a lot of talking with my foundry that I work with, um, who do the casting of the metalworks, wow. uh, talking to studio managers, talking to like you know, collectors, business people, uh, institutions. Mm. Um, so I'd, uh, more and more of my time is sort of going towards communicating with people. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, have, I have a little less messy time. And a bit mm-hmm. more kind of, um, I guess, verbal communication or emails. It's interesting because you know the creative pro- process is different for particular types of work. So the kind of the the prints and the, the woodcuts and stuff that I do is very therapeutic in a sense because I 
I'm there just kind of in the process carving drawing or carving and, and doing this thing but in order to achieve like a nine foot bronze I've got to work with a team of people a team of specialists to facilitate that and it's a very different process which is actually just as rewarding because you get this sort of um, symbiotic relationship if you work with people enough it's a bit like conducting perhaps I don't know I've never done it I can't play any instruments but <laughs> you know it, it feels like the same process just like when I kind of started to move towards using what I call digital clay using the computer to, to do some of the sculpting that process felt very natural because I had the other underlying processes sort of internalized so I know I, I know what clay feels like I know how form and volume are and so that kind of just that movement towards doing it in three in the 3d software felt mm -hmm. very natural just like working with other people now feels very natural Mm -hmm. So um, my day is generally quite varied. Um, mm. and I, I often have loads of different pieces going on at the same time. Mm. Um, but it's always a real kind of treat to sort of just be drawn completely into one process for a moment. Um, and so I'm trying to do more drawings, particularly mm. in the lockdown. It's an interesting kind of time to look at, you know, if, if certain things are being taken away, certain processes mm. or access to um, teams, it's a really good way of looking at what is valuable in the practice and, and actually quite a good challenge or exercise in cutting certain things away and, and, and letting new growth happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's, I would I actually want to go right back to the beginning, even though we've kind of gone quite far forward. But every time you talk, I think of someone who's so decisive and even your work is so decisive. And you said even when I decided to become an artist, <laughs> When yeah. did you decide to become an artist and why <laughs> did you decide to become an artist? Yes, well, I'm doing lockdown my, my mother at the moment. She said, um, I, I, I seem to be very slow, but then suddenly I move very quickly. Um, uh, I think, yeah, I, I, I like to kind of process things mentally and then once the plan's there, put it, just put it into action. Um, I decided to become an artist, I guess, when I was about 18. No, <laughs> Eight, yeah, 18. I think I was leaving. I was leaving secondary school, sixth form. And initially, I was thinking about being a physiotherapist, um, and then realised I was never going to be a successful one. Well, I was so dyslexic, I couldn't do do the schoolwork. Um, and then, I, then I seriously considered joining the Royal Marines, wow. um, and yeah, and was talked out of it. Um, uh, I was told to to try a a arts foundation course. I basically, so this is why I'm kind of a bit I'm not sure what quite age it was, but basically when I went to the foundation course I did at Camberwell, um, I loved it so much I was like, right, I'm going to be an artist. And that was it. And I just basically focused on what would it take to you know, achieve the things I needed to achieve in order to, 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 to live as an artist. And, mm. you know, and because being an artist can include so many different ways of functioning, mm. it, I guess you know, at the time I didn't realise it, but it was just a way for me to um, do the things that I was good at you know, mm. as a dyslexic going through um, school it was not necessarily the easiest mm. and so to do something that I was actually I guess praised for and something that felt natural in a way that allowed me to speak um, my thoughts and access my thoughts and, and communicate with people quite fluidly was mm. uh, just seemed like a very natural natural thing. Wow so I love um, discovering people's processes like their journey because even you know, from physiotherapist potentially to Royal Marine to sculptor, but or artist, they're all they all require a level of dexterity. 
mm. <laughs> I suppose. Um, and and I mean, I'm I I think we are glad that you chose art because your stuff is truly truly beautiful. And um, you know, I'm grateful that you that whoever talked you out of the Royal Marines did that. Yeah, yeah. that was my mum. Yeah, <laughs> I, I figured it must have been a mother. <laughs> That's the... <laughs> but yeah. tell me what mistakes or lessons have you learned that we could learn from it's interesting because I'm one of those annoying people that kind of thinks that everything happens for a good reason um but I think there's certainly lessons like, and if I, if I were to go back and talk to my younger self I think it would I would probably just try and convince that younger self to um be a bit um kinder to to myself um and to yeah I think just just that mainly because um you know you describe me as decisive but I think it, it also comes with a, a heavy dose of self-criticism right and um sometimes creating standards which can't be you know which just aren't possible <laughs> so and I think it's great that people go for big um goals but it's it's how we kind of treat ourselves if those they don't come as quickly or as you know uh, easily as as we anticipated um I think you know and again you know I'm not trying to be like do a, a COVID-19 special here but I think really this idea of caring for oneself and, and loving oneself so that you know you can extend that to other people is, is genuinely <laughs> I'm laughing at myself when I say this but I, I genuinely believe that is a, an amazing thing which has a real impact on the world around us. Absolutely I totally agree and my last question what music are you listening to at the moment? I got a bit of an eclectic thing going on because I, I I've been trying these sort of um, streaming services, which <laughs> I feel like an old man. I can't really work them properly. <laughs> but I've been like listening to um, uh, was it Abdullah Ibrahim's like Senzo album, which Amazing. is just blowing my mind. Um, you know, I've been posting about it, and I I I, I don't normally talk about my musical tastes because they're so strange. Um, yeah, you know, I like I like hip hop and opera and stuff like that. I've, actually, I've been listening to like Liquid Swords again by Jizza. This okay. is just awesome but um uh, jesse norman when she's been listening to her, her the four last songs which is strauss that's been kind of uh good things to work to at the moment so i'm sort of i'm all over there i i, I don't you know because i don't really have a single genre mm. bit of um massive attack right all very good music so you know i, I that's the edited version <laughs> yeah. I, I i left out you know lem is don't not lame is I say. Lame's tenth anniversary edition is fantastic, and everyone needs to listen to it at least once in their lives. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Thomas, thank you so much for taking the time. I really, really do appreciate it. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much to Thomas J. Price. His deconstruction and insight has resourced me to see in a new way. If only I could have a one-on-one -on -one guided tour of an artist's work each time I go to an exhibition. Please be sure to explore Thomas's groundbreaking work on his website, follow him on social media, details of which are in the blurb below. Better still, when this lockdown is over, why not go and see his work in the flesh in public spaces and galleries across the UK and internationally. And as always, you know what to do. Share, like, subscribe to the podcast on the SoundCloud and Insta platforms at holding up the ladder, hashtag H-U-T-L. Next week, I'm joined by photographer and director, Justice Mukherley. Sometimes uh, my lived experiences are things I can't articulate with words, you know? Oh. So what I do, 
I look into photography or I look into the film work I make um, to capture those feelings and emotions, you know, and that sensitivity around some things that I was feeling. So that if I capture it in a photograph or in a moving picture, it's a form of archiving that feeling and it gives me access to kind of unpack, unpack it in a therapeutic way. Until next time.